bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about renewable energy, which is a priority for the Biden administration and has seen a lot of legislative activity in recent months. Several key renewable energy tax incentives were extended in December, including deadlines for the investment tax credit and production tax credit. Congress is also considering the Green Act, which would extend and expand several other renewable energy tax incentives. Now, our guest today is Tony Raponi. He's with Novogratz Andover, Massachusetts office. He's a partner of mine. And if you've ever attended any of Novogratz Renewable Energy Tax Credit conferences, either in person or online, you've probably seen Tony. He's active on our panels, and he's the chairman of our annual Financing Renewable Energy Tax Credits Fall Conference, which we hold in November. Now today, Tony and I are going to discuss the state of the renewable energy community, starting with what happened in 2020 and the state of the market so far in early 2021. During that discussion, we'll talk about transaction structure trends and what kind of advantages each of the various structures offers. After that, we're going to look at proposed and enacted renewable energy tax credit legislation, including what developers and investors should be doing now to prepare for extended deadlines. We have a lot to cover today, so if you're ready, let's get started. So Tony, thank you for joining me today. Now I want to start with a big picture question. Now the year 2020 was challenging in so many ways. I wanted you to share with us some of your observations about the challenges faced by the rural energy financing and development community in particular. Well, first off, thank you for having me, Mike. I'm a big fan of your podcast and it's a pleasure to be here. In thinking about the pandemic's impacts on the 2020 renewable energy industry, I like to think about it in sort of two broad categories. First, I like to think about it in terms of how projects were impacted that were supposed to be completed and placed in service during 2020. And then I like to think about another category, which is projects that are supposed to be completed after 2020 and beyond. Now, in terms of the projects that were in construction and expected to be placed in service last year, you know, I think back to Q1 of last year, there were many overseas manufacturers that were shut down because of the pandemic. That led to a lot of concerns over construction timelines. As you know, in the tax credit equity markets, if projects slip into a subsequent year, that can have significant impacts or consequences to the overall financing of a project. So naturally, there were a lot of concerns that projects would be delayed and potentially slip. But somewhat remarkably, many and to most, if not all of those manufacturing facilities got back online, continued production, and were able to deliver components to projects so that they were able to complete, for the most part, on time. And so although there was a lot of concerns initially in the year, we were, I think everybody was very pressed with the ability to sort of keep on track and get deals done. Another area that we were sort of suspected would lead to delays was in the residential and community solar space. In that segment of the renewable energy industry, sales efforts were historically done in person and door to door. Well, when the pandemic set in, obviously in-person sales efforts had to halt. I think a lot of people were nervous and concerned about community solar developers' ability to be able to make the transition to a virtual sales platform. But I'm pleased to say that after keeping tabs on my community solar development clients throughout the year, I can't tell you how impressed I was at how quickly they were able to pivot to that virtual sales platform. And I'm happy to say that today, that segment of the marketplace seems to be back up and fully on track. 
Now, as far as how the, what I see as the pandemic's biggest impact on the industry probably has to do with the tax equity market. Once the pandemic set in, most of your traditional tax equity investors felt the need to pause on writing new term sheets. That makes sense. They need to assess the pandemic's impact on their tax liability. And Mike, again, as you know, if a tax equity investor's tax liability goes down, so does their demand for tax credits. And so we saw a lot of your sort of traditional tax equity investors take a pause and step off to the sidelines. And that's something that we hope the new Biden administration and Congress can hopefully address through some form of additional uh, legislation or stimulus for the renewable energy sector. But those are my views on the 2020 tax equity market for renewable energy. So thank you for that, Tony. It was a good overview. And I like the way you bifurcated, the way you look at 2020 and the impact the pandemic had. We do get lots of questions from listeners, and we've discussed in the past investor appetite, and everyone's asking about investor appetite in 2021. So you mentioned some of the challenges last year. Could you talk a bit more about what you're expecting in terms of investor appetite this uh, current year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I sort of like to think of it as, you know, the general pool of investors and then the types of investors. And so for 2021, I would say the pool is apt to be the same size. But in terms of the types of investors that are in the pool is looking a lot different. So what do I mean by that? So pre-pandemic, the pool was made up of a smaller number of investors, mostly large household family name banks, insurance companies, and some large corporates. Well, once the pandemic set in and many of those investors decided to sort of step off to the sidelines a bit while they reassessed the pandemic's impact on their tax liability, that created a short supply of tax equity in the marketplace. Whenever there's a short supply of tax equity, that leads to an increased after-tax IRR for tax equity investors. And in my experience, whenever I see that increased tax equity IRR go up, that serves to sort of pull in some new entrants into the marketplace. So we're seeing some new investors that we haven't seen previously. They're being brought in, they're being sort of attracted into the market by these higher returns. Now, what do they do? They, they invest in sort of smaller dollars at first as they sort of get used to the marketplace. And so for 2021, I see some of your traditional household family name banks and insurance companies still sort of on the sidelines, maybe coming back at a smaller rate, but then you're complementing that with a greater number of smaller investors all investing at sort of smaller ticket sizes. And so I guess the silver lining in this is although we've seen some of your traditional investors pausing a bit, it's always nice to see some new investors come into the marketplace. And we're hoping that once they get in, they like the product and they decide to stick around on a long-term basis. Yeah, thank you for that. And I certainly agree. Having new investors is critical in all the various tax credits in which we work. So for the renewable energy project sponsors that are listening in our audience that are listening in on this podcast, how would you describe the availability? You've talked about the types of investors and the rest. What's the availability of cash equity as well as debt in 2021 as we are hopefully finding our way out of the pandemic? That still continues to be a real bright spot in the industry. And so sort of the way I like to describe it is this. If I'm talking to one of my clients and if I can tell that they're sort of down in the dumps a bit about what's going on in the tax equity market, I know that I can usually cheer them up if I steer the conversation and start talking about debt and cash equity. The debt and cash equity still continues to be, there's plenty of it and at better rates and terms than ever. 
And so that's been a sort of real silver lining here is that although there's a strain on tax equity, the debt and cash equity rates still continue to get better and better. And that's helping to keep some momentum here with the renewable energy financing. Now, in terms of debt, back leverage still tends to be favored. Okay, especially by tax equity. And if tax equity favors back leverage, well, then sponsors tend to favor back leverage as well. But you can still see plenty of what we'll call project level lending. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes my clients are confused by what I mean by project level lending versus back leverage. What I mean by that is a project level loan is a loan that goes from the bank straight to the partnership that owns the assets. Whereas a back leverage loan is a loan that's usually going to the managing member or the sponsor of the tax partnership. And then so the borrower is the managing member, and then the managing member then contributes that borrowed money into the tax partnership. So again, in renewable energy, there's a general preference towards back leverage lending, but you can still see plenty of project level lending, especially for your smaller projects. Maybe you could uh, share a bit about that. You use the term, you, you reference cash equity and you reference tax equity. So they're both equity, different types of equity. Do you want to share some thoughts or further explain the two? Sure, sure. No, great question. Sometimes I refer to tax equity investors as what we'll call like pure play tax equity investors. And what I mean by that is you're t- I'm talking about an investor that's ca- making a capital contribution to a partnership and the benefits that they're looking to get in return are primarily the tax credits, some tax loss benefits that, that are provided in large form in, in depreciation and a de minimis amount of the return coming from the cash economics from the deal. Okay. So they do get cash economics, but it tends to be the smallest piece of their return profile. The biggest piece of the pure, what I'll call a pure play tax equity investor's return profile comes from the tax credits and the depreciation benefits and a de minimis share from the cash. Meanwhile, you've got cash equity investors that really aren't looking for tax credits per se or depreciation benefits. They're really looking for cash returns. And so they're looking to get distributions of operating cash flow as the biggest portion of their overall return. That sounds great. Thanks for clarifying that. So you basically have tax equity, cash equity, and debt playing different roles, along with other ways, other sources of capital in the capital stack, which we won't go into here. I I will, though, uh, ask you if to what impact the last uh, year and a half has had on project heights or sizes, either because of the pandemic or just the evolution of the renewable energy markets. Sure. Uh, You know, I'll say this. Your large, probably highest credit quality utility scale projects, they've never really had the same kind of challenges in terms of raising financing as your smaller projects have. As you get into these smaller projects that that have a harder to underwrite credit profile, if you will, those smaller projects with the less visible credit, if you will, they've always had a harder time raising tax equity, debt, and cash equity. But I'd probably say the availability of cash and debt has benefited your smaller projects and like your community solar projects and your smaller projects. The plentiful debt and cash equity has really benefited those smaller projects the most. Now, smaller projects have benefited from tax equity as well, just because as the industry, as the renewable energy industry grows and tax equity investors get more comfortable, if you will, with the underlying asset class, well, the tax equity investors, they've also gotten more comfortable going sort of downstream to smaller projects as well. So sort of a recap there, your large utility scale, squeaky clean credit deals, they've always had what seems like good access to financing, whether it's tax equity, debt or cash equity, but it's those smaller projects that have struggled more in that department. And um, they've benefited the most, I would say, from uh, especially the amount of cheap debt and cash equity that's been in the market. 
So when you talk about equity, yields are associated with that equity, and maybe you could share as best you can. It's always the question we get from clients all the time. You know, what kind of yields are you observing for new transactions for equity investors? And it's not a simple question to answer, but I'll uh, pose it to you (laughs) and let you address it as best you can or as best you choose to. Sure. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a question that I get all the time. So I'm going to talk first about tax equity investor returns. Because uh, that's the question that usually our clients ask the most. So you have two types of tax equity investors, it seems like, in the marketplace. You've got some tax equity investors that are focused primarily on what I'll call like your after-tax internal rate of return or your after-tax IRR. And then you've got some other tax equity investors that look at what I'll call your after-tax return on investment or after-tax ROI. And so as I mentioned in the beginning of the call or the beginning of the meeting, after-tax IRRs and ROIs have both gone up since the pandemic. I'd say like pre-pandemic, there was sort of a sweet spot after tax IRR range of say upper sixes to upper nines. And after tax ROIs were sort of upper single digits getting up to close to 20. And both of those, you know, your after tax IRR and your after tax ROI, they've definitely increased both. And so now you can see after tax IRRs up maybe 50 to 100 basis points. And then on the after tax ROIs, you've seen um, similar size increases, anything from like what used to be maybe an after tax ROI of say 9% might be more like 11 or 12%. And so you've definitely seen an increase there. As far as debt and cash equity, we've seen about a 50 to 75 basis point increase on both debt and cash equity returns as well. Great. Thank you for that, which then leads us to another question we get all the time from clients, and that's structuring. And of course, structuring is one of Novogratic service areas, helping clients there along with the forecasts and projections, cash flow models and the like. But in advance of all that, we end up spending time working with clients, thinking through which structures could be most beneficial for their particular goals and purposes. So if you can maybe share what the structuring trends are you're seeing so far for 2021. And actually, in addition to that, For listeners who might not be as familiar with the various structures, maybe you could include a short summary of each of those structures and some of the reasons why there are more than one structure. Sure. There are three very commonly used ownership structures in renewable energy. So, uh, and I'll sort of describe them from like least complex to the most complex. The least complex structure you have out there is what's called the sale leaseback structure. That's a structure whereby a developer builds a project, places it in service, and then they sell the completed facility off to an investor, usually a bank type investor. And then the bank will sort of sublease the operations of the asset back to the developer. And so that's the least complex in that the developer has one counterparty they're working with for the financing. You know, they sell the project for 100% of its value off to a bank type of investor. So they raise all the financing proceeds from one counterparty. And so it's the simplest in terms of structuring from that regard. And then from there, you've got you've got two other commonly used structures. The next complex would be what's would be probably the Goldilocks structure in the marketplace. It's called the partnership flip structure. It's sort of the bread and butter structure, if you will, in the renewable energy industry. It's a partnership structure that is used to own and operate a renewable energy project. And it usually has two partners. It usually has a managing member sponsor, and then it has a tax equity investor. And those are the two partners. And it usually involves what's called a flip mechanism. And so what I mean by that is the managing member sponsor 
sponsor will start out with what is the most common flip structure involves a sponsor having what's called a pre-flip 1% interest. And the tax equity partner starts out with what you call a pre-flip 99% interest in profits, loss, tax credits, and so forth. And then they agree that at some point in the future, their interest will flip. And under the flip structure, the sponsor can flip up to as high as 95% and the investor can flip down to as low as 5%. And when that flip happens, there's usually a call option that period that commences that gives the sponsor the option to redeem the investor's interest, their post-flipped interest out for some perceived affordable amount of money. And that is the most popular tried and true bread and butter structure used. The last structure that you see in the marketplace is called the inverted lease structure. It's widely viewed as the most complicated structure. It's the most complicated right from the get-go and it has several names that it's referred to by. It's most often referred to as the inverted lease, but you may also hear it referred to as the lease pass-through structure or the master lease structure. And so right away, it's confusing just by, just by virtue of the fact that it has several different names. But that's a structure that doesn't use one partnership to both own and operate, but instead it uses two partnerships to own and operate. It uses one partnership to own, and then it uses a separate partnership to operate. And so the owner entity builds, constructs the asset and owns the plant, but then it is operated by the second partnership, which I'll refer to as the operator. And so the operator collects, you know, they're, they're responsible for handling all the operations, so billing for electricity, paying operating bills and so forth, and generating the net operating income, if you will, of the partnership. And then the operator partnership is designed to use most of its operating cash flow to make a lease payment or a rental payment back to the owner for the rights to operate the facility. Why is this structure used? Well, it's people choose this structure out of either like investor preference or to tailor certain benefits. And so the inverted lease structure, although it is structurally more complicated, it could be very effective at tailoring certain types of tax benefits. For example, the owner partnership I mentioned previously, that's where all the tax depreciation benefits get generated. Meanwhile, the tax credit is going to be reported by the operator or the tenant, if you will. And so there are some tax investors that really value primarily the tax credit and they're least interest, they're less interested, if you will, in the depreciation benefits. And so some tax credit equity investors will say, look, we'll pay you X for the credits, but we're not really as interested in the depreciation. Meanwhile, you might have a sponsor that can really use the depreciation benefits and they value them. And so if you have a situation like this, this inverted lease structure, although complicated, is very effective at tailoring certain tax benefits to intended parties. And so I know there was a lot that I went through there, Mike, and I know that, I know it's hard to really adequately clarify these structures uh, on a podcast call, but hopefully that gives you a little bit more insight in terms of the structures that are available and the benefits of each. So what's trendy? The inverted lease has picked up. It's become more popular. The partnership flip will always be sort of your tried and true bread and butter structure, but we've definitely seen an increase in popularity with the inverted lease structure. And why is that? I suspect it's for two reasons. Number one, we have some new investors that have come into the solar space from the historic tax credit industry. And I think, as you know, in the historic tax credit industry, many of those investors tend to use the inverted lease structure. And as those investors have come over to solar, they've said, look, we like what we see from the solar industry. However, we're just more accustomed to using this inverted lease structure. So if we're going to invest, we prefer to use this structure. So I think that's one reason why the inverted lease structure is becoming a little more trendy, if you will, on solar. 
Another reason is because as our sponsor clients continue to grow and become more profitable, they can actually use more of the depreciation benefits themselves. So I think they're, you've got some solar sponsors saying, hey, we like this structure. A, the investors like it, and B, we can actually use the depreciation benefits. And then as far as the sale leaseback goes, that structure continues to be popular with either newer developers who are looking to kind of recycle capital as quickly as possible or developers that do smaller deals. So a sale leaseback, in my view, tends to be very popular with newer developers or developers that, do, that tend to do smaller projects. I hope that helps give you some clarity on structure trends and maybe why people pick the, are picking these structures. That was a great overview. So thank you for sharing that. Very well expressed. Kudos. So a lot of clients, in addition to structures and equity price and yields and the rest, they're also often asking us what some of the risks are that they should be aware of. And we're oftentimes, you know, going to clients and saying, these are some risks that you should be aware of. You know, what are some of the areas that uh, you're seeing right now in the risk profile front? Yeah. So we get brought in mostly on like the tax structuring of a deal. And so it's usually tax issues that we're focusing on. So those are the risk areas of a deal that we're usually the most aware of. So from a tax risk standpoint, you know, it, it, it still continues to be a bit of like developer fees. I mean, that always tends to be a hot topic in the industry. You know, developer fees tend to get paid to a related party of the sponsor for the value that they create in developing a project, right? You know, but that being said, you know, there was a court case involving in energy that a lot of people in the renewable energy industry are very familiar with. Invenergy developed um, its Bishop Hill and California Ridge wind projects. These projects charge developer fees and they applied for these, these projects were built many years ago and they applied for 1603 cash grants. And ultimately, the government disallowed the developer fees from being added to eligible basis. And so as a result, there's been a shift in the industry where project financiers, instead of charging traditional developer fees as a way to sort of capture the value that developers accrete when developing projects, instead of charging traditional developer fees, instead what they're doing is the developer is developing and constructing the facility. And then when, once the facility is, is quote unquote mechanically complete, and for those of you who don't or who aren't familiar with the phrase mechanically complete, what that oftentimes means is that's the point in time as close to being placed in service as you can be without being actually placed in service. Okay, it's sort of like your final stop before you're actually placed in service. And so what what we're seeing here is we're seeing developers bring the project to mechanical completion, you know, again, immediately before it's placed in service. And then they sell the mechanically complete facility to the tax partnership. What I mean by tax partnership is, is that's the partnership that's going to claim the tax credits and depreciation benefits. And so again, the developer brings the project to mechanical completion, and then it sells the mechanically complete facility to the tax partnership at some number that's usually at or below uh, the project's fair value. And they're using that as a way of trying to capture that value accretion, if you will, as opposed to trying to capture that value accretion through a more traditional developer fee mechanism. And again, that's a bit complicated. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I'd say related party developer fees are still sort of the, the hot topic, if you will, in terms of areas of tax concern. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm not surprised. Uh, developer fees can be an issue in a lot of uh, areas, uh, not just uh, with respect to renewable energy. So let's talk about renewable 
renewable energy legislation. So moving on, and let's start looking backwards. <laughs> look, we have to look backwards to look forward. <laughs> so I want to talk about <laughs> okay. the topic of tax credit extensions. Uh, the investment tax credit production tax credit were part of the year-end 2020 fiscal package. If you could give our listeners a brief overview of the renewable energy provisions in that legislation and what they mean to our clients looking forward. Yeah, at the end of the year, late December, the renewable energy industry got a nice little shot in the arm with some extenders. And so I'll focus, there were a number of extensions, but I'm obviously going to focus on on the items that are of key interest to our clients. So I'll start with PTC for wind. So PTC for wind got another one-year extension. Uh, They got extended at 60% of what I'll call the full rate the full PTC rate. And they can they qualify for that as long as the PTC projects for wind are able to begin construction before the end of this year. Next, we got the we got the ITC extension for 26%. You know, before the extension, if projects didn't commence construction before 2021, then the ITC for solar was going to step down to 22%. So solar got a nice extension as well. The ITC was expanded. They created a 30% ITC for offshore wind through 2025. So that was uh you know, definitely well received by the wind community. A waste energy recovery property eligible for ITC only that got included in the extenders package. And then, of course, we hear about the orphan technologies. I'm talking about biomass, hydro, trash facilities, et cetera. As long as construction on those facilities began by the end of 2017 and starts, you know, by the end of 2021, then those are actually they're eligible for the full ITC or PTC. So again, those were those were nice. Those were helpful. We're hoping for more, but as so, but at least we got a nice shot in the arm with some extenders. Yes, indeed. We'll talk about our hope for more in a bit <laughs> about legislation <laughs> in Congress now, but I did want to focus on the PTC and ITC extension specifically. With the begin construction deadlines getting pushed out, uh, what advice are you giving developers and investors as to what they should be doing now to prepare for those deadlines? Yeah, great. So a lot of this is the same advice that we we love to stress to our developer and investor clients. You know, so a quick recap here. So in order to commence construction, projects, they have two paths to choose from. Path number one is what's referred to as the physical work of a significant nature standard. That's path one. And then path two is what we call the 5% safe harbor path. You know, developers overwhelmingly prefer the physical work of a significant nature standard, and that's because it doesn't require them to spend any sort of minimum amount amount of money on a project too early. So developers like that requires them to spend less money. Makes sense. Meanwhile, investors uh, overwhelmingly favor the 5% safe harbor. And and that's because the 5% safe harbor just lends itself to a much more objective underwriting process. So it makes sense that investors would prefer something more objective. Now, my advice for developers is you can hope that your investor will be okay with your physical work of a significant nature plan, but I would warn you to sort of plan, be prepared to have to go the 5% safe harbor route. Now, once a developer finally recognizes that they need to use the five, that their investor will require them to use the 5% safe harbor, for example, then a developer has certain types of costs that they can incur. From a big picture, as long as they incur 5% of their eligible basis, that technically qualifies. That being said, not all costs are necessarily created equal. And so I normally like to rank these types of costs in terms of tiers. And tier one, I, I refer to tier one costs as hard components procured from third parties. 
those are the easiest to underwrite. And as a result, and, and that, for that reason alone, investors prefer it. And that's my recommendation. And then you sort of come down to, you know, other tiers of costs. And the, the cost category that I recommend the least is usually soft costs incurred through related parties. It's not because at the end of the day, they can't qualify for eligible basis. It's harder to sort of document and sort of get your investors comfortable, if you will, that they're reliable for 5% purposes. So sort of in summary, for my developers, I would say be prepared to use the 5% safe harbor in acquiring third-party hard components. And I'd say start sooner rather than later. And obviously, I'd stress this to the wind community. So for wind projects, you've got to commence construction this year to qualify for that 60% full rate PTC. And then for solar, they get a little bit longer uh, lead time with the extension. They don't have to focus on this quite as much this year, but time goes by quickly. And before you know it, the solar developers are going to have to be thinking about this as well. Great. Thank you for that uh, summary, Tony. I did want to also note for our listeners, these aren't directly renewable energy community, certainly not tax equity community related, but they are uh, very useful for, for affordable housing and other real estate developers. One is the Section 45 CAPL Energy Efficient Credit. Uh, that was extended through the end of 2021. Uh, and as many of our listeners already know, the Section 45 CAPL Credit is for up to $2,000 per unit for residential buildings of up to three stories. And then also included, and it was actually made permanent, was the Section 179 Cap D Commercial Property Energy Deduction. And that's residential buildings that are four or more stories high are eligible. So you basically have the 179 Cap D deduction if you're four or more stories and up to three stories, you get the tax credit. But uh, reach out to Nervograd Professional if you want more to learn more about the applicability of those credits to your real estate development. I did want to get back to you, Tony. I said uh, it, we'll talk about the future in a moment, what we're hoping for that we didn't get as part of year in tax legislation. So the earlier this month, we actually saw in Congress the first major renewable energy legislation being introduced. It was introduced in the House of Representatives. It's the cleverly named Green Act, G-R-E-E-N Act. What are the highlights, Tony? What do you think our listeners should know about this act in advance of it making its way through Congress? So the Growing Renewable Energy and Efficiency Act or Efficiency Now Act of 2021, otherwise known as the Green Act. This is very similar to the bill that was introduced last year. And um, again, there's a lot in here for green energy, but I'm just going to focus on the highlights that I think our clients will be mostly interested in. So I'll try to go through them somewhat quickly. So first and foremost, the act seeks to extend the 30% ITC for solar and geothermal through the end of 2025, and then sort of go into its normally expected sort of phase down. There's other property that's other renewable energy technologies, if you will, they're eligible for the ITC. They get an extension through the end of 2026. So even one more year. And then they go into their normal scheduled phase down. Then there's energy storage technology and linear generators that the ITC has been expanded, if you will, to now include a 30% ITC for energy storage technology and linear generators. That's an expansion of the program. That's great. The PTC for wind energy at the 60% full rate, that also seeks to get extended through 2026. So the wind industry would certainly love that. We've got PTC, the PTC for landfill gas, trash, qualified hydropower, 
marine and hydrokinetic renewable energy facilities also seek to be extended through 2026. And then you've got the programs that you just mentioned, Mike. You've got the Section 179 Cap D deduction. Starting in 2022, that would get increased from the dollar eighty per square foot up to $3 per square foot. And then finally, the, the 45 Cap L per, uh, credit that you mentioned would, get, would also get extended through 2026. So as you can see, there's a number of you know, extensions and expansions of the, of the tax credits that the industry would, would certainly welcome. So lots of bills get introduced in Congress every year. We don't talk about all of them. <laughs> we did choose to talk about the Green Act. The Green Act has broad Democratic support. Democrats do control the House and they narrowly control the Senate by the narrowest of margins, uh, controlling it 50-50 with the tie-breaking vote being Kamala Harris as vice president. Now, we should probably talk about Joe Biden because the Democrats now control the White House as well. And President Biden, when he was running for office, he did outline you know, strong support for green energy initiatives. And he also included on the tax side, in addition to expanding a number of uh, green energy initiatives, he did talk about increasing the corporate tax rate to 28%. So in the midst of all of this, in the midst of being very sort of pro-green energy tax incentives, along with changes to the tax code that could lead to higher tax rates, How are you seeing uh, President Biden's election uh, and the Democratic Party's control of Washington affecting expectations of the renewable energy world? Yeah, yeah. A lot of speculating going on right now, especially from the tax equity investor side of things. Tax equity investors are trying to speculate in terms of what that corporate tax rate change might look like. What's the likelihood there will be a change? And if there is a change, how high could that rate go to? As you know, the margins in the House and Senators are very thin. And so it's hard for me to imagine that the corporate tax rate goes up significantly. However, from talking to investors, many of them are sort of speculating there will be an increase, maybe upwards to maybe 25%, okay? And so what they're doing right now is a lot of investors are reaching out to us to help them model their deals, assuming a change in corporate tax rates to say 25%. That impacts new deals and old deals. It impacts new deals because, well, if they do a new deal and the corporate tax rate goes up, well, the value of depreciation benefits immediately goes up. You know, as as most people on this call know, the value of of a tax benefit, you know, there's a direct relationship there with the corporate tax rate. So right now, if you've got a $100,000 depreciation deduction and a corporate tax rate of 21%, well, now that depreciation deduction is worth $21,000 to you. But if the corporate tax rate goes up to 25%, well, now it's worth $25,000. So you get the depreciation benefits are worth more. So that's on the new deal front. But there's also a consequence on the old deal front. And so a lot of renewable energy projects have been claiming bonus, the 100% bonus depreciation. So let's say a project was placed in service in 2020 and they claimed 100% bonus depreciation. Well, what does that mean? That means that they got a lot of tax deductions in 2020, but going forward, they're going to have taxable income. And so now the investor got their tax benefit on the bonus depreciation at say 21%, but now the taxable income that gets generated might suffer a tax burden at 25%. And that's giving the investors a lot of concerns because they're trying to figure out, hey, what is, if we took bonus depreciation, but now the corporate tax rates go up, how is that going to negatively impact my after-tax IRR? And so they're reaching out to us naturally to see if we can help them run scenario analysis on their IRRs. And so there'll be a lot of that going on this year, I suppose, in addition to just kind of tracking what's going on with, in Congress with tax rates. But again, it's, it's really hard hard to say for sure what's going to happen just because the, the margins tend to be so thin, but we'll, we'll certainly be tracking it closely. Yeah, it's uh, thin indeed. Democratic control of the House representatives 
actually narrowed in these last elections. So it's five or so votes uh, that they could, they have a margin of. And then, as I mentioned, the Senate's even, <laughs> 48 Democrats and two independents, a caucus with the Democrats. So it's 50-50. I certainly agree that Joe Biden campaign for a 28% top corporate rate. It's hard to see that that would be the rate that actually ultimately passes. And 25% does seem like a, a more uh, reasonable number to potentially uh, have the rate increase to. But also, there's a lot of concern about raising taxes during a recession and during a pandemic. So we'll, right. not only is it interesting, not only do clients need to be assessing what that corporate tax rate might be, they also need to be giving thought to when uh, it might change. And it certainly looks less likely to change this year, but you know, we don't know how the economy is going to go. And there's a lot to still be done in the House and in the Senate. But let's turn you into uh, maybe not a prognosticator, maybe rather than ask you to predict <laughs> what might happen in terms of tax, tax incentive legislation, I'll actually ask you what is on your wish list. <laughs> so if uh, Congress sure. were to pass, and let's actually think positively, assuming Congress is, will be passing some renewable energy tax incentive legislation this year, uh, what's on the top? I know you have a long wish list <laughs> and, you <can't laughs> wish for, and you can't wish for more wishes. What's at the top of your wish list? Yeah. So my wish list, it really reflects my client's wish list. Okay. And so the things that the industry is pushing for the most is, you know, a 30% ITC extension. That's from the sponsor crowd. And then on the win side, obviously a PTC, a longer PTC extension. I mean, PTC really needs needs a longer runway for sure. Solar can certainly benefit from it. You know, the, I, I think if I had to say though, the one thing that if I had to put one thing at the top of my wish list, it would be what the tax equity investors seem to be telling me that they want the most, which is a carryback on the ITC, a longer carryback. A lot of my investor clients are coming to me and saying, geez, if we could get a, something like a five-year ITC carryback, then that would motivate them to really get back into the marketplace a lot sooner, okay? Because they could use that credit, carry it back to some tax years previously where they had income and they paid tax liability and they could sort of recoup some of that by carrying ITCs back. So to me, that would be the most effective way to get some of your more traditional tax equity investors back into the marketplace and be the most effective at getting the industry back on track to where it was pre-pandemic. And then lastly, a standalone ITC. I don't care what segment of the renewable energy industry you come from, they all favor a standalone ITC for storage, for storage facilities. So that's something I think, you know, would be well received across the board. But those are sort of my tops, Mike. 30% ITC extension, a little bit longer runway on the PTC extension. The biggest thing, of course, is a five-year carryback for the ITC, and then maybe a standalone ITC for storage. Well, I uh, agree with you on all of those. And I also know a number of other uh, tax incentives that would really like to see the five-year carryback. I mean, the five-year carryback really would help all the various tax credit communities you know, better plan and rely on the ability to use tax credits. To be a company that's investing in tax credit equity doesn't have to be as worried about an interim downturn, a recession and the like, because they know they'd be able to carry the credits back five years. So I'm uh, fully supportive of that. And as would uh, our clients that work with long closing tax credits, new market tax credits, historic tax credits and others. But I will give you, uh, you're almost off the hook. But I'm going to ask you one last question uh, if you're up for it. We're not quite two months into 2021. I will ask you to make a prediction here. How do you predict the rest of the year unfolding for renewable energy? I think it's going to be a decent year. It'll be. It'll obviously be a much stronger year if we can get some additional stimulus for renewables. There seems to be broad consensus throughout the uh, 
renewable energy industry as well as the broader tax credit community, as you mentioned. On the five-year ITC carryback, I think that'd be the most effective to kind of really ramp up production of clean energy. You know, the Biden administration seems to be very pro-clean energy. And I think if they wanted to give the industry the biggest shot in the arm they could, it would be through something like a five-year ITC carryback. If they can do that, I think you'd see a very, very strong year for, for renewable energy. Without that, I think fortunately the industry does have a healthy amount of momentum in it. And so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see we'll see some fairly decent momentum. It won't be the same kind of slowdown, if you will, that we saw during the banking crisis. There's momentum definitely these days. Um, so it's not like you're going to see the same kind of setbacks you did back then. But if the Biden administration is really thinking they want to make a big investment in renewable energy, I would say either some stimulus, especially in the form of a carryback, would be the most effective. And I see when you're referencing the sort of banking crisis, you're going back to the 0809 recession and the challenge we were facing then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Back then, I think there was a there, there was a bigger overall impact on the renewable energy industry. It was much more of an emerging emerging industry back then. Plus, just the overall sort of financial crisis was was very different than what we're seeing now with with this pandemic. Exactly, and the other tax credit communities where we work, as you know, were also uh, much more dramatically affected in 0809 than this last year, which is which is not to minimize how challenging the last 12 months have been. I really appreciate you being a guest and sharing your insights about the state of the renewable energy world now and going forward. I really think we covered a lot and I appreciate you spending the time. Uh, and I know our listeners yeah. are wondering, how can they get a hold of you? So I'll let them know that we will include your contact information in today's show notes. I'd encourage our listeners to reach out uh, to Tony uh, with any questions. Also, I'd encourage our listeners to be sure to tune in to next week's podcast. There, we're going to feature my partner, Rich Larson. Uh, Rich will be joining us for return appearance. Rich was previously a guest on the podcast last December when we discussed how public housing authorities were addressing challenges posed by COVID-19. Next week, Rich is going to be back to talk about what you need to know about preparing tax returns for public housing authorities uh, and tax credit entities. It's going to be particularly important for properties that housing authorities are involved in that have undergone rental assistance demonstration program or RAD transformations. However, the topic next week will also be helpful to others, including PHAs that might be interested in RAD, but don't have any RAD transactions at the moment. Now, I also want to remind you, you can be notified as soon as future episodes of the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast are available by subscribing to the podcast. Just go to www.novico.com slash podcast, and you can stream the show directly from our website. You can also subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.